Please pray with me. Our Sovereign Lord, right now I need all of you to fill all of me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to always be diligent to present myself to you as approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. God, this passage from your word is hard. It is hard to process and it is hard to teach. So Father, I yield to you. I yield each woman who is listening to you. I pray, God, for me that you would empower me to serve you to the praise of your glory. And I pray for these women that, God, you would help them to see through the noise of the darkness and depravity of this passage, to hear your voice, the Master's voice, speaking to their hearts. Oh, God, help us to see your truth to see your hope, your sovereign goodness, as we walk through this passage. I pray this in the name that is above all names, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Could you use a little hope right now? Where are you on the hope-ometer? Hopeless? A little hopeful, but a lot of doubtful or confident in hope. We can all use the bright shining light of hope to navigate the darkness of this world. The light of hope can be found at a beautiful little orphanage in Soy, Kenya. It's named Tumaini, which means hope in Swahili. It is a brightly shining ray of hope for many children who would otherwise have no hope. It is a bright light shining in the darkness. To get to Tumaini, you have to pass through poverty-stricken cities on dusty dirt roads, past bleak rundown shacks and people dressed in rags struggling just to survive. Everything is dirty, colorless, Hopeless. Then the gates to Tumaini open. There the grounds are lush and green, the cottages are clean and colorful, and the children are well fed, well clothed, and happy. The contrast is striking. The children in the orphanage know what it's like to have no hope. They were plucked out of the dark despair of dire and often unimaginable situations and placed in a home called Hope, a home filled with light, abundance, and unconditional love. When they first arrive, they rarely smile. They're scared, confused, uncertain. After a few months, you can see hope written on their faces. Contrast that experience with that of a young Jewish girl named Hadassah. Orphaned, her situation was surely hopeless. 
ancient Persia was no place for an, er for an orphan. A ray of hope broke through when she was adopted by her cousin and given a safe, secure place to live. Until one day, she is plucked out of safety and security and placed in the pit of despair. All hope, all goodness vanished. She needed hope, not the hope of the world, but an eye know so hope that only God gives. Hadassah needed to know the hope that rests in the sovereign goodness of God. And to walk through a chapter like Esther, chapter 2, you and I need the same kind of hope. Commentator James Kaufman says, This chapter takes us into the harem of Xerxes, an ancient Persian ruler most certainly one of the vilest cesspools of immorality, selfishness, greed, hatred, wickedness, lust, and shame that existed in the ancient pagan world. In order to protect and preserve the chosen people, God worked his will in the lives of the evil men who controlled and directed the affairs related in this chapter. It is somewhat distressing that there is almost no word of condemnation in most commentaries regarding this festering satanic ulcer on the body of the human race called the Shushan Palace. This text does indeed take us to a dark, dark place with no perceptible hope on the horizon but it also exposes our hunger for hope, a hope that rests in the sovereign goodness of God. That's the truth that we'll look at through the lens of God's providence in our three divisions, providence in a plan, providence in a people, and providence in the palace. Our first division is providence in a plan, Esther chapter two, verses one through four. Verse one, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Four years had passed since he had vanished Vashti, and the king, with his pride wounded in a disastrous war, returns to Susa to console himself by indulging in the sensual pleasures of his harem. Then he remembers Vashti. Now this may mean that he wanted to reinstate her as his queen. By now, his son and heir, Artaxerxes I, was no doubt a precious little three or four-year-old toddler. But the king was a victim of his own drunken and irrevocable decree. Banished meant banished forever. The king's advisors also had a vested interest in making sure that Vashti was, was banished for good because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So they scheme. Verses two through four. They say, let 
beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the providences, provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now this is not a good solution. It is, in fact, a horror. It is evil. It is dark. It is depraved. Many commentators liken this plan, though, to a Miss, Miss Persian Empire beauty pageant. That thought completely misses the mark. It covers up the utter depravity of a plan that decreed the shameless rape of many, many young pretty girls just to choose Vashti's successor. Being evil to the core and always narcissistically self-centered, King Ahasuerus likes the idea. At the end of verse 4, he says, This pleased the king, and he did so. In verse 3, we're also introduced to a man named Haggai, one of the king's eunuchs that was entrusted with the oversight of the king's harem, for obvious reasons. Haggai is specifically mentioned by the Greek historian Herodotus as being an officer of King Ahasuerus. He was a real man in a real moment of history. Unbeknownst to him, in the middle of this horrific depraved plan of man, God will use him as well as King Ahasuerus to work out the deliverance of his people. God's sovereignty and God's goodness is always at work. It is immutable like God, unchanging. God never ever changes. Every attribute that is true of him is always 100% true of him. So even when it is hidden by the depravity of man, God's sovereign goodness remains. A truth worth remembering is that God's sovereign goodness is immutable even when hidden by man's depravity. How are you looking at the darkness you see in this world? with human eyes or spiritual eyes? Which of God's promises will help you find a ray of hope in the darkness? A picture of 21 men in orange jumpsuits kneeling before 21 black-clad executioners is seared in my mind. The scene was breathtakingly evil. Seen with human eyes, it is horrific, utterly depraved, and dark. But what was not visible to the human eye was the presence of the Lord God Almighty 
He is the ray of hope that the eyes of faith see shining in this deep darkness. God's promise to every believer is that he will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, who is Emmanuel, the with us God, promised in Matthew 28, 20, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the sure hope of every believer. When 21 men faced an evil far greater than we can imagine, God was their only hope. And I am confident he did not let them down. He was there in all his sovereign goodness with his beloved sons, just as he is always with everyone called by the name child of God. God's sovereign goodness is immutable even when hidden by man's depravity. Remember that. His providence is next seen in the people that we meet in Esther chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 7 serve to introduce us to the people involved in the rest of this narrative. The first is Mordecai. His name is said to be derived from the pagan god Marduk, which means dedicated to Mars. The deportation of the Jews into exile is referred to by the repeated phrase, carried away. This had occurred more than a century ago, meaning that Mordecai's parents or grandparents were the ones who were carried away into exile. Mordecai's name suggests that he was born in Babylon, although the Babylonians often changed the names of the people they employed. Mordecai was also a Benjaminite. Israel's first king, King Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The second person we meet in this passage is Hadassah, or Esther. She is the star of the book of Esther, so it's quite fitting that her Persian name Esther means star. Her Jewish name Hadassah means myrtle, a star-shaped flower. An orphan, Esther was raised by her cousin Mordecai. Esther's adoption by Mordecai is mentioned twice in these two verses and again in verse 15. The author believes that this is important for us to know. I think it's because Mordecai gives us a beautiful picture of God the Father. God the Father adopts us as his own just like Mordecai adopted and orphaned Esther. Mordecai clearly loved Esther. His watchful care and tender love for Esther reflects God's watchful care and tender love for us. It also reveals his sovereign goodness. God the Father, the first person of the triune God, the sovereign Lord and creator of all things, the one who is exalted in heaven as a majestic king of kings. He adopts us as his own and he invites us, his children, to call him Abba. Wow. Ponder that. 
meditate on that. That is an incredible truth. Mordecai and Esther were part of the Jewish people God called his own, but their families chose to remain in Persia even when over 42,000 exiles returned to Judah. In Mordecai and Esther's day, the land of Judah was regarded as a wild and backward place. In verse 7, the author shifts our focus to Esther, and he emphatically declares that she was remarkably beautiful. He says she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. What he was saying is that Esther was stunning, drop-dead gorgeous. So in verse 8, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Esther and all these young women, they were not just gathered up. They were taken by force. Imagine being ripped from the safety and security of home and placed in the custody of a harem master. Like all the other young women, Esther had no choice. Amid the evil and darkness, do you think Esther and Mordecai saw the sovereign goodness of God? Did they possess a knowledge of God deep enough to see him, see them through? It doesn't seem likely. But on this side of the cross, you and I know God as he reveals himself in scripture. Our hope rests in the sovereign goodness of God. Knowing that, equips us to endure the worst suffering. Though surely traumatized, Esther is compliant, and the king's eunuch, Haggai, he notices. Verse 9 says that she pleased him and won his favor. He is partial to Esther. He likes her looks and he likes her demeanor. He knows what pleases the king. And he thinks Esther is the one. Verse 9 continues, And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Despite how offensive we find this whole scheme, God is at work, providentially making sure that his people find favor, even in a terrible situation. Esther is given the best place in the harem. I mean, who knew there was such a thing? She won the favor of the harem master, who is a mere puppet in the hands of the sovereign Lord. God's unseen hand is at work on her behalf in the coming chapters, and he displays his, his sovereign goodness to his covenant people, even though they were in exile.
because of his just judgment. God is unfailingly, undeniably, sovereignly good. Still, his people rejected him. In uh, 1043 BC, God's covenant people, his treasured possession, demanded that he give them a king so that they could be like all the nations around them. Scripture records this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They refused to accept a king they could not physically see. They rejected the king of kings. In response, God gave them what they desired, their first human king, King Saul. Over 400 years later, God's people were still suffering the consequences of this decision. Rebellion against God and disobedience to his commands persisted with king after king after king. Finally, with King Jeconiah of Judah and his subjects living just like the nations around them, God's judgment fell in the form of defeat by Nebuchadnezzar and exile. Now, another earthly pagan king ruled God's people. Esther was under his rule and wrapped up in the evil of the Persian palace. But Haggai paid special attention to her. No matter how beautiful these poor peasant girls were, they had to be cleaned up, fattened up, and groomed for the king. Haggai also gave Esther seven of the best maidservants of the harem to look after her beauty needs. The other young virgins did not have this extra care. Esther was beautiful to begin with. Now she was even more beautiful, and she had servants to make sure that she looked that way all the time. At this point, the author reminds us that Esther no matter how beautiful, was a Jew. In verses 10 through 11, it says, Esther had not made her people or kindred known, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Mordecai sensed that the right thing to do in this circumstance was to hide that she was a Jew, and Esther obeyed him. The Persian palace was a dangerous place for a Jew. The fact that the Persians did not already know that Esther and Mordecai were Jews tells us that they were likely not practicing Jews. Over the years, the Jewish families assimilated more and more to the Persian world in which they lived until their identity as the people of God could no longer be distinguished. It appears that this is true of Esther and Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is very protective of Esther. He walks in front of the court of the harem every day to check on her. He is rightly concerned for her welfare. 
He could not see what we see when we read the book of Esther. He could not see God's providence. He could not see God's sovereign goodness. All he could see was that his beloved adopted daughter was in a dangerous and tenuous situation. But you and I can see a ray of hope shining in the darkness. Scripture tells us that God is sovereignly good. This is part of his character. Esther and Mordecai, they should have known this truth about God. As a people, Israel was the recipient of God's sovereign goodness over and over and over again. God made an everlasting covenant with the ancestors of Esther and Mordecai. They were his people and he was their God. His covenant promises would not ever fail. Therefore, his sovereign goodness is always at work on behalf of his covenant people. That's our second truth is that God's sovereign goodness is always at work on behalf of his covenant people. How have you seen God's sovereign goodness at work on your behalf recently? Through a divine appointment? Through a word of encouragement spoken right when you needed it most? Or through an unexplained gift of exactly what you needed at the exact moment you needed it? These are all the ways that God's sovereign goodness is at work on our behalf. The world calls this luck, karma, fate, or success. But it is a display of God's mercy and grace. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless, prayerless, and outright disobedient. What is your response to the incredible truth that God chooses to extend his goodness to you? Esther and Mordecai, they show no evidence of seeking God or worshiping God. They show no evidence of living like God's covenant people. The author does not tell us that they followed Jewish dietary restrictions or that they prayed daily as the Jews were commanded to do. Yet God was still at work in their lives because they were his covenant people. And in his providence, he chose to work through Esther and Mordecai to deliver his people from a greater evil. This is because God's sovereign goodness is always at work on behalf of his covenant people. And at this particular moment in history, God needed a Jew in the Persian palace. So our third division is providence in the palace. Esther chapter 2 verses 12 through 18. Verses 12 through 13. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, 
since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. The young women were groomed before seeing the king. Matthew Poole, an English theologian who lived in the 1600s, explains that the oils and perfumes were necessary because in those hot countries, their bodies did of themselves yield very ill scents, if not corrected and qualified by art. This lengthy preparation also ensured that none of the women were pregnant when they entered the harem. This protected the king from being charged with fathering a child that was not his. A year of constant spa treatments. It sounds wonderful to our modern ears. Yet the destiny of these spa-pampered women must also be considered. All of this was for one evening in the king's bed. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and summoned her by name. Of this verse, James Kaufman comments, Where are there any sadder words than these? One frightful night in the bed with Ahasuerus and the next morning relegated to the status of a concubine, never more to see him unless called by name. Remember how vast the Persian kingdom was. The king's officials had gathered virgins from all 127 provinces, and yet only one would be chosen as queen. All of those who were not chosen were sent to the harem where they would stay for the rest of their lives, never free to leave or to marry another man. This sets the stage onto which Esther steps in verses 15 through 17. It is finally her turn to go in to the king. Though she had the right to take whatever she wanted from the harem with her, she took only what Haggai advised her to take. Esther trusted the man who knew the king's likes and dislikes best. She had already won favor with Haggai. Now we learn that she was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. In verses 16 through 17, Esther is taken in to King Ahasuerus, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. This is a remarkable course of events. 
a course that takes Esther from queen from orphan to queen of Persia. And this was not coincidental or accidental. None of these things happened because of Esther's good luck, good fortune, or even good looks. It was all the providence of God. Esther was part of God's plan. Kaufman again says, only God Almighty could have brought such a thing to pass as this. God, in his infinite wisdom, laid his plans to preserve the chosen people from destruction. God's sovereign goodness is not bound by the schemes of wicked men. He is the sovereign God who orchestrated the events for Joseph to become second in command to Pharaoh himself. He is the sovereign God who orchestrated the events of human history so that a Hebrew baby named Moses ended up being raised in Pharaoh's palace and made heir to the Egyptian throne. He is the sovereign God who made Daniel the third highest ruler in the very kingdom where he was a captive. You see, the king of kings reigns over every earthly king. Because that is true, even in the darkest night, our hope rests in his sovereign goodness. The story of Esther shows us that God can use evil men with evil plans. God did not make the king and all his men devise a wicked plan to find a new king, a queen, but God did use the wicked actions of an earthly king to fulfill his greater plan. Despite all human odds, God's providence prevails and Esther is crowned the queen of Persia. Verse 18, then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This verse describes the wedding reception to top all wedding receptions. The Persian royals are feasting again, and this time it is in Esther's honor. And all the peasants are invited to join the celebration by enjoying the generosity of their king. They are the happy recipients of a tax break and generous royal gifts. But surely the fleeting goodness of a wicked man like King Ahasuerus pales in comparison to God's sovereign goodness. The truth is, is that God's sovereign goodness is infinitely superior to the goodness of godly kings and things. That's our third truth. God's sovereign goodness is infinitely superior to the goodness of earthly kings and things. What worldly goodness are you pursuing? Who or what are you hoping will fulfill you? What is disappointing or dissatisfying your heart right now? Have you ever noticed that enough is never enough? 
God hardwired us for hope. And we default to a hope in earthly people and things. Over and over, we place our hope in the people and things of this world. And ultimately, we will always be disappointed, dissatisfied. Enough is never enough unless our hope is in God. His sovereign goodness is infinitely superior to the goodness of earthly kings and things. Rest in his sovereign goodness. Do you have a confident hope in the sovereign goodness of God? Or could you use a little hope right now? Like the children of Tumaini, the children of God the Father have hope. When our prodigal children are running headlong into the depravity of this world, when our marriages hit troubled waters, when the dark, sick underbelly of this world is not only revealed but glorified, when death and disease exact a heavy toll on those we love so dearly, when fear looms larger than faith, and when our suffering outlasts our human strength, we are invited to run into the arms of our Abba. In your hopeless situation, take heart, dear one. Confident hope is yours. Let King Jesus usher you into the true Tumaini, the house of hope that is filled to overflowing with the sovereign goodness of your Father, God. Let him minister his hope to your hurting, helpless, hopeless soul. If you are his child, put on your spiritual spectacles. You will see that God is unfailingly sovereign. God is undeniably good. And he is your loving Abba. When you know this truth about God, you can let your hope rest in the sovereign goodness of God. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, Abba, our hearts sing your praise, for you are sovereign, completely in control of all things at all times. Yet you do not wield your sovereignty mercilessly. Instead, you wrap it up in your exceedingly great goodness. You are a good, good Father. You are merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Fill our hearts and minds with worshipful, worshipful praise, O oh God, from the moment we open our eyes each day to the moment we close them again at night. This we ask in the holy name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.